Okay, hi, uh, my name is Rory Yeomans. I'm here at Oxford for the next two months as a Cantomir Fellow. As well as working in academia, I also am a government researcher and I do a lot of work on statistics and economics and so on. And I find that's really helped me with my academic work as well. And my presentation today, um, it's called Utopia and Terror, which is not a very original title, because if you go into Google, there's about 100 university courses with the title Utopia and Terror. Um, but it relates to the title of my book. And it's really about thinking about how you can use interdisciplinary methodologies to better understand violent societies. And my area of research specialism is the independent state of Croatia and the Ustata regime, which obviously is still quite a controversial area. And so I just want to spend the next 40 minutes or so going through some of my ideas and, and thinking about some of the questions which have occurred to me when I've been doing my own research. And rather than just do 40 minutes of self-promotion for the book I'm writing with a group of other people, I am very good at self-promotion, but I'm not going to do that for the next 40 minutes. Um, I want to kind of widen out the discussion a little bit to think more broadly about the area in which I work and also to think about how that might relate to some areas, uh, analogous areas of history. Okay, so this is what I'm going to be looking at today. So the background to my book, The Utopia of Terror, where, where did that come from, that whole idea to write this book? The current state of research in my area of specialism. Um, then think about interdisciplinary approaches. What is an interdisciplinary approach? Now, my idea of an interdisciplinary approach is maybe not the same as everyone else's. So I'm sure some people are going to sit there and say, that's not an interdisciplinary approach. But it's my, my own idea, so it's kind of like my own interpretation of that. Then think about how I've applied interdisciplinary methodologies to the research of the Eustatia regime and independence of Croatia. Then just something very quickly about, you know, the Eustatia state, whether that could be seen as a prototype or an example of a violent society and how that might relate to other violent societies and where I think research might go in the future. Okay, so the background to the Utopia of Terror, which is the title of the book I'm working on at the moment. Okay, so really the background to this starts about 10 years ago when I first started on my PhD. Um, and I decided I wanted to do something about the Eustache regime. I'd done it for my master, so I thought I'd just do a continuation of that. And there was really nothing that I could really use. And I was really frustrated about the fact that when you looked at books on comparative books on fascism or books about the Holocaust, it was really kind of a footnote to all of that side of things. And it really wasn't mentioned very much. And there was, a, there was a sort of Serbian historians very much concentrated, and Yugoslavian historians concentrated very much on the genocide and the camps and how many people were killed. And Croatian historians were doing this kind of odd thing at the time, which was looking at cultural politics. And I thought, well, you know, I was reading a lot of uh, historians who wrote about fascist history, people like Ruth Ben-Ghiat and Victoria de Grazia and Shelley Baranovsky, who's writing about Nazi Germany. I thought, well, I want to do something quite cultural as well. And I thought, but you can't ignore the genocide because that's obviously such an important part of the state. So I thought, is there some kind of relationship between the two things? I didn't know if there was, but I thought there could be, but I didn't really know what it was. And so the first thing I came up with was this idea that maybe they were using cultural politics to legitimise the genocide and the mass killing in the camps and so on, which seemed to me like a really sim simple and neat idea. And I really liked the idea at the time because I was quite time poor and I thought, well, this would be quite an easy thing to do. I can knock something up fairly quickly. So I produced my PhD, and that was fine. And then in 2010, I wrote what I call my Leningrad Telephone Directory article. I think everyone writes a Leningrad Telephone Directory article. And for those of you who don't know, Sheila Fitzpatrick, who's a historian of the Soviet, Soviet Union, wrote a little article about Leningrad Telephone Directories. And what she did is she wanted to work out how many people she thought might have been affected by the purges. So she went through the Leningrad Telephone Directories from the 1930s to see, because obviously if you've been purged, then your name would be taken out of the, uh, the directory. 
and she produced it and you know she got she thought I'll oh, just publish it it'll be fine and she got so much negative uh, feedback from it people were saying this is disgusting what are you doing you're trying to legitimize the purges you're, you're trying to rehabilitate Stalin and I wrote a little article about somebody called Yuri Francetich who is the commander of a death squad in Croatia and it was about his funeral and about sort of you know how, how that was covered in, in, in the state newspapers and popular opinion this kind of thing and it was reviewed by three people for a very prestigious journal and they said this is disgusting what are you doing you don't know what you're talking about you know nothing about the subject you're completely ignorant you're a complete lunatic not the first time that someone said that to me and I kind of wondered about why they were so upset about this particular article what was it that made them so angry because the reviews are very very personal and I couldn't understand why I'd only ever had good feedback to them so I thought well what is it which they don't like about that article. And I kind of quickly started to realize that actually, it wasn't the subject matter that upset them, it was my entire approach. It wasn't the facts, it wasn't subject matter, it was the entire approach. And I kind of realized quite quickly that actually there's some resistance. If you want to do something different, and I was using a very interdisciplinary model um, in a comparative approach, that there might be some resistance to that because there are some people who like, kind of like things the way they've always been. So then in 2011, I went to Croatia. I had submitted, I was trying to submit um, the manuscript for my PhD. I'd finished my PhD a couple of years before, and it was 30,000 words longer than it was meant to be, and I hadn't even sent them the final chapter. So the publisher said, no, no, stop, you, you can't do this. You've got to think of a way of making it shorter than it was. So I went to Croatia. It was the hottest summer they've had for, I think, 15 years, 37 degrees centigrade in the shade. I was overdosing on sugar and burek, so I was basically tripping a lot of the time I was there. And um, so, and I thought, well, okay, I've got to find a way of making it shorter. But I said, I don't just want to write it. I thought, okay, I'll write about cultural politics. I'll just get rid of the chapter on minorities on Serbs and Jews and Gypsies. I thought, but you can't really do that because when I looked through the other chapters, I realized that all the time it's mentioning Serbs, Jews and Gypsies um, and, and minorities, and it's full of allusions to racial politics and, and contaminated society and so forth. So I, can't, I, I need to put this in. And so I went to the archives. I do remember going to the archives a couple of times in between my hallucinations and all sorts of other things. And I, and I started rereading some of the stuff that I had you know, read years ago and I'd kind of dismissed. And I started to realize that actually the connection um, between the mass murder and cultural politics was actually not as simplistic as thought. And actually the two processes were related to each other, that you couldn't actually separate this thing from each other. So when you had some historians talking about genocide and mass murder, and other historians talking about cultural politics, as if those two things were completely different aspects, actually you couldn't divide them from each other because they were actually part of the process. And that's my eureka moment about five years after I'd actually finished my PhD. So then I did a lecture at Uppsala. I was invited to Uppsala University to give a lecture and I thought I'd do something on new, methodolo new methodologies. And that seemed to go down quite well. And I was really hoping, because one of the guys there is an expert on the Ustasha regime, and I thought, I really hope he didn't write one of the peer reviews. And I don't think he did. And so then I got this idea for this book and I thought what would be great would be to write a book uh, where you're looking at new methodologies, new approaches, comparative approaches, um, and also thinking about what is the relationship between utopian ideas, you know, remaking society, refashioning society, and, you know, intrinsic violence, genocide, and mass murder, and are they kind of related together? So I put this advertisement into the academic websites, and I have to admit, I stalked a few people, because I'd heard there were these, these really great young historians who'd been to this conference, which I was meant to go to, but I couldn't, so I did stalk some of them. But then when I put the advert in, I was amazed at the number of people who came and said, actually, I really want to be part of this. 
you know, a lot of young PhD students who said, you know, we, we want to take this approach, but we're really scared to do so because we think we're going to be attacked for it. We, we, we're going to be accused of, of, you know, using quite dangerous methodologies. So that was really good. So that, yeah, it's a way of bringing young people who, who are interested in these methodologies um, into the process. And also I thought maybe is there a way you can kind of bridge this antagonistic national history gap which exists, you know, if you look at the way Serbian, many Serbian historians talk about the Ustasha regime and the way many Croatian historians have traditionally talked about the Ustasha regime is a way of kind of bridging the gap by bringing these two aspects together. Okay, so looking at current research about the Ustasha regime and the independent state of Croatia, I'm going to focus on what I think is going on in Croatia at the moment, simply because I think that's where most research is coming from. Okay, so in Yugoslavia, I think until the 1990s, I think it's fair to say that a lot of research was very personality driven, it was very top down research, it was very narrative, you know, it's this encyclopedic approach to history writing, very detail rich but not necessarily very analytical. And there's very little cultural or social history for very good reasons. Because the Ustasha regime was seen as a collaborationist regime, as marginal, there's a real emphasis on occupation. Okay, so they, they didn't really want to think, historians weren't really encouraged to think about social history. Because the minute you start thinking about something below the top, then you start acknowledging that there's a level of participation amongst the population, which they really didn't want to go to. And then post-1990, cultural history of the Ustasha regime became very, very popular in quite a lot of um, Croatian historical circles. And Croatian historians is something which is quite controversial. They argue that there was a distinction between the independent state of Croatia that produced lots of culture, lots of art, lots of you know, interesting social ideas, which the partisans adopted after the war, and the Ustasha regime, which had concentration camps and death squads and terror. Now, whether you think those two things can be separated is another issue, but that was certainly what they argued. And recently, there has been more work in Croatia on the dynamics of terror and about propaganda, but I would still argue that a lot of it is very much based on high politics. It tends to be quite narrative, and the apologetic approaches and discourses, I think, are still quite dominant. And I, I also think one of the things, you know, that, that, that the historiography in this area really needs, and, and there's not just an absence of comparative or interdisciplinary frameworks, there's actually resistance to it, as I found when I wrote my little Leningrad uh, telephone directory piece that, you know, that, that people really didn't like this interdisciplinary, this interdisciplinary approach necessarily. They didn't think it was appropriate. Okay, so my idea, Rory's idea, what an interdisciplinary approach is. Um, so I would say that at the ground level, it's really about seeing a regime as it sees itself, you know, seeing it from the inside out, okay? Now, I think a lot of interdisciplinary history started with cultural history and then later social history, which I think alone those things can be a little bit problematic. I think social history focuses tended to focus very much on social mobility, social support, and that can be dangerous if there isn't a political context there, because obviously, uh, you know, social mobility in the Soviet Union in the 1930s is not the same as social mobility in America in the 1950s, <coughs> they're, they're different things. And, and I think, you know, without wanting to stereotype it, cultural history science has been kind of relatively credulous about the sources. I think if you look at a lot of the work that's come out culturally um, around fascist Italy, for example, they tend to, seem to be very source-based and they tend to look at particular sources and they report what the sources say rather than what they mean or why they're saying what they're saying. So I think there's a lack of context there. Another thing I think that, that I like about an interdisciplinary approach is that I think Interdisciplinary approaches recognise there is a story in history and that it matters how you tell it. 
Okay, I think very narrative, very personality-based history. Obviously, there is a place for political history, um, but I think particularly in this area, it tends to be very, very narrative-based. It's very detailed, and it's quite difficult for someone to follow. And if you're not someone who's particularly interested in that area, why do you necessarily bother reading it? So I think an interdisciplinary approach at least acknowledges that it's important how you tell it. And you know, it brings in all sorts of other perspectives, social, anthropological, and literary perspectives, but also economic, scientific, and statistical approaches as well. You know, again, I think sometimes there's been a tendency to look at you know, sort of literary um, and anthropological areas, whereas I think sort of sciences are also very, very important. So for example, if you want to write something about racial politics, you know, and you think, well, I'll look at a few books and novels because they're also dealing with the subject. I think you also need to understand the science behind the racial politics as well, because, because otherwise it's much harder to understand what's going on. So that's about a full range of written, oral, and visual sources. Okay, being really imaginative about the kinds of sources you use, but also having that wider context, that wider political context, not just of what's going on in the society you're writing about, but also bringing comparative analysis. So what's going on elsewhere in Europe or the world which is having an influence, okay? And for me, as someone who works across two fields in academia and in government research, it's about evidence-based writing. You know, bring in as many tools and as many different sources as possible. So the evidence you have is as robust as it can possibly be. And I think in that way, you construct a more complex view of society. Okay, so just a few questions that, that, that I might want to raise. And I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, but one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, for a long time, people use phrases like the regime, the state, the society. What do these phrases mean and are they actually useful? Okay. Um, I know that if you go back and you look at the way people wrote about the Soviet Union in the 1960s, for example, you know, people always talk about the regime does this and the regime does that, as if it was Stalin and a few of his colleagues around the table. You know, in a way, it was kind of ironic because it replicated the view the Soviet Union wanted to take of itself. It wanted to see itself as a well-functioning, ordered society. Okay? And, and so I think you need to think, are these terms actually useful? Do they actually mean very much to us? Okay? And so I think it's kind of acknowledging that a lot of regimes are polycratic. You know, they're, they're quite fragile. They're full of factions which are pushing up against each other the whole time. And they're quite vulnerable to political pressure. And I think another thing that's important is, is looking, you know, I think in the 1980s and the 1990s, social history very much concentrated on from above and from below. Um, which I think is useful, but I think it simplifies because a lot of the time the really interesting things are not happening right at the top or right at the bottom. They're happening somewhere in the middle, quite often at a place which is below the top, which is not right at the bottom of society. Okay? And if you're digging into regimes or societies and you're looking at what's going on, quite often it's good to see what's happening in the middle because that, that's where a lot of the key stuff is happening. And I think inter interdisciplinary history really um, acknowledges that citizens are active agents of history. I think, you know, previously a lot of history assumed that people have no power. I think the whole paradigm of the Eustache regime was that they were a collaborationist regime and people, you know, supported their regime or they made a share support the regime because they were scared because they had no agency. You know, I think if you're using interdisciplinary methodologies and you're really going into what people are saying and, and how they're acting, then I think a lot of that starts to fall apart. Okay, so I'm not going to go too much into the history of the Mustache um, regime and independent state of Croatia because I, I'm guessing that 
quite a few of you know a little bit about it already. And if you don't, well, why did God invent Wikipedia? That, that's uh, what he invented that for. <laughs> but basically, they came to power in 1941, and they uh, inaugurated what they saw as a national revolution. They always argued, well, we, we had a revolution. And they embarked, essentially, on a killing spree against uh, minorities, of which there were quite a lot in the state. And between April 1941 and the late summer of 1941, they killed and persecuted a huge number of people. Um, so here are just a few stats for you. This is for the whole period between 1941 and 1945. Bear in mind, so the state was, uh, the Ustasha regime was in power for four years. Okay, so in that period, they're estimated to have killed between 350 and 500,000 Serbs, deported 200,000 and assimilated 200,000 by force. So they had a conversion program where they tried to uh, convert large numbers of Serbs to Catholicism from orthodoxy. Uh, the Jewish population was essentially exterminated. 30,000 Jews were killed or executed, mostly at concentration camps, although many of them were also just shot. Okay. Uh, they uh, pretty much exterminated the Roma and Sinti populations. Um, they were actually okay until about the summer of 1942. And then over the course of about three months, they just rounded up the entire population. Uh, they were almost all deported to the concentration camp of Yosanovats and pretty much all of them were murdered, okay? And also they killed quite a lot of Croatians and Bosnian Muslims, Bosniaks, who opposed their regime for whatever reason, whether because they were anti-fascist or because they simply tried to defend their neighbors. Okay, and it's estimated that in 19, December 1941, the Ustasha party or movement only had about 100,000 members. That's quite a small number when you consider the population of the independent state of Croatia was about six, seven million. It is quite a small number. But there are many other people who were, you know, probably supporters of the movement who weren't actually formal member, didn't have formal membership. And in May 1945, there were 200,000 members of the armed forces. Now, before that, the number was quite a bit smaller. It's probably nearer 100,000. So there weren't actually a lot of people to do the killing, um, but they didn't have modern means of extermination like uh, gas chambers. Um, so it was pretty much done with guns and with knives and axes and so on. Um, so that, you know, obviously there, there, there must have been um, quite a bit of participation. Okay, and so here are two, just a kind of random picture, um, two of the leading personalities of this period, uh, the revolution, something they, they called this the revolution of blood, okay? But what was weird is they never talked about the revolution of blood until it had almost finished, so, that, so it was quite strange. Um, and on the left is Poglavnik Antipavlic, who is the leader of the Ustasha movement and the head of state. And on the right is Yuri Francetich, the guy who caused me all the trouble, who was a leader of a death squad. Okay, and then around September 1941, I, I, you start noticing all these references to the Second Revolution and thinking, well, what is this Second Revolution? They talk about the other revolution, the spiritual revolution. Um, and they start criticizing the behavior of, of young people in the movement, uh, youth activists, and, and particularly male ustachers, you know, women's journalists start saying, well, they're very coarse and vulgar, they're being very violent. Um, and there's a campaign against renegade, renegade ustachers, and some ustachers are put on trial and they're executed and they establish court martials. And at the same time, they launch this war for what they call cultured values, because they argue that, that the citizens become very uncultured, they become too violent, they become too crude, and they, they need to be made more cultured, they need to be brought art and culture to make them better people. And they set up this institute called the National Enlightenment. Now I thought, what's this all about? It's not really necessarily just about cultured values, so what else might be going on here? 
And when I went to the archives, what I, what I found was that actually there's these power struggles going on, okay? There's, there's this struggle for power going on. There's all sorts of factions pushing up against each other. And there's also lots of arguments going on at the grassroots and lots of conflicts at, at the local party level. And what seems to have been happening is, is that around this time, the leadership, so Pavlich and his closest advisors, decided to purge many of the tough working class members of the movement who are very, very radical. And they start bringing in lots of young, university-educated technocrats. Okay, and it's at this time that a new line emerges towards minorities, particularly Serbs. Okay, so it's kind of like a process of state building uh, after the kind of radicalism which was on before. And at the same time, there's lots of debates in party journals about what is the role of the movement. Should it be an elite organisation for the, the cream of society, for the most radical, com politically committed members of society, or should it be popular for the wider population? And the movement decides so that it should be for the wider population. They embark on this big recruitment drive um, to get ordinary people to join the movement or at least become supporters of the movement. Now, this ends in late 1944, um, when the state enters a new crisis, okay, and they purge the softliners, the moderates in the movement, and they bring back the hardliners, and then it pretty much goes back to the way it was before. Okay, so what I want to do is just go through a few of the main areas that I picked out in my research, which might kind of illustrate some of these processes which are going on. Okay, so when the Eustache movement comes to power in April 1941, you know, they have this very, very strong anti-bourgeois ideology. Um, one of their chief slogans is, we have sentenced capitalism to death. So, uh, you know, they obviously don't like capitalism very much. And they have all these, you know, all these local branches and local organizations develop all these really um, radical social utopian ideas. So, for example, they decide we're going to get rid of money. They're not going to have money anymore because money's evil. We don't want money. Um, so they will just barter instead because that's purer and that's more in line with Croatian traditions. And they launch this war against illiteracy. Okay. Now, the same, they also set up all sorts of institutions for workers, so workers' radio stations, workers' sports centres, and, and, and they very much emphasise the health of the nation and the race, okay? Now, at the same time that's going on, it's not completely altruistic. Uh, they're also, uh, the, they set up this directorate called the State Directorate for Economic Regeneration, which nationalises Serbian and Jewish properties. So if you're Serbian or Jewish, your property is essentially taken away from them. They deport large numbers of Serbs to Serbia and they take over their property, okay? And they have show trials against members of the Serb middle classes and what they term capitalist exploiters who are mostly Jewish businessmen as well. You know, to kind of emphasize how badly these sort of exploited workers so there's a clear, clearly functionalist approach to what they're doing. So you can see there's a connection between anti-capitalism and race, you know, in terms of purifying the nation, and then that's like economic regeneration, okay? Now, after the second revolution is announced in September 1941, the movement makes a much bigger emphasis on social and economic policies for workers. So they develop this system of workers' rights and this, this form of socialism, which they call Croatian socialism, which is very kind of close to national socialism. But what, what they argue is that there are three classes of people in Croatia. There are the peasants, and there are the workers, and there are the intellectuals, sorry, the fourth one, soldiers as well. Um, and so they want to create this organic society where these four classes working together for good. And they create this really bizarre cult of work so that, you know, the only value in life is working. Nothing else really matters. And, of course, when they set up their concentration camps, like the Nazi concentration camps with the Arbeit Mac Fry, this is the same slogan they have above their camps as well. So, again, it's very much related to the terror. It's not something which is just happening of its own accord. 
Okay, so looking at some of the subcultures which emerge out of the independent state of Croatia, um, so looking at men and women, so they have this real cult of the male warrior. Um, they have this. They invent this new thing, the new Ustasha man. They argue that in the in the period when Yugoslavia was 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 in existence, then Croatian men were emasculated. Uh, they were humiliated. They didn't have any pride, and they see this man not only as a warrior who's who, who's going to defend the nation, but someone who will defend the family hearth as well. Now this is a little bit contradictory because they launch these campaigns against bachelorhood, which partly related to their worries about demography, that there are too many Serbs, there are too many foreigners in Croatia. But it's also a bit contradictory because men are meant to be warriors who would join a militia or a death squad and travel around the country, and they're meant to be free of any ties, but at the same time they're meant to be married and having children. So there's all sorts of contradictions and tensions going on there. And there are also contradictions and tensions when, when they, they, in their policies towards women. So if there's a new Ustasha man, then of course there must be a new Ustasha woman as well. And she's meant to be the mother and the wife, so she's meant to have lots of babies and she's meant to be a domestic goddess, but she's also meant to be a Spartan mother who will defend her dead warrior sons, and Ustasha heroine who will pick up and defend her home whilst her husband is away at war. Now this causes problems because particularly young female activists say, I don't want to have kids, I want to get a gun and I want to join a militia and kill lots of enemies of the state, okay? And there's all these articles in uh, female youth journals pointing out to women, you can't do this, this isn't the deal, you're, you're not going to be doing this, you're going to be staying at home and having children. But of course what happens is as the men go away to war, or to the front as they call it, um, you know, society becomes increasingly feminized. So women start to become dominant in the universities, they start running the farms, they start doing all the work in the factories and in the offices, because there are no men to do that work. So, so it actually kind of works against them. Okay, so another kind of subculture they create is a youth subculture. The Eustache movement is very, very strong on youth subcultures. You know, it defines its revolution, its national revolution, as a revolution of youth. And it's a, it's a revolution against both decrepit races, such as Serbs and Jews, and also decrepit ideologies like liberalism, um, decadent democracy, and Yugoslavism. Now, what happens very, very quickly is there is generational conflict in the movement. When the Ustasha uh, regime comes to power in 1941, it goes on this mass recruitment drive to get young people to join the movement. But young people aren't particularly keen to join the movement, um, so that gets abandoned quite quickly. So then they say, okay, well, this is an elite thing. Only the elite young people can join the movement. And quite a lot of young people do, because if you join the Ustasha youth movement, you get to do all sorts of things you, you've never done before. You get military training. They're very big on military training for children. It becomes a very big thing for them. But you also get to do lots of art projects and things like this as well, okay? But then over time, you know, what happens is, is that because they created, they've made such a big emphasis on young people, there's a real conflict developed. So older people start saying young people have no respect for us whatsoever. They think anyone who's old is past it and redundant and has nothing worthwhile to say. And then what also happens is that the youth basically starts eating the regime. Uh, they start saying, well, you're all corrupt and, and, and you're useless and we should be the ones in control as well. And they become very critical of ideological deviation. And then what you also get is tensions between the Ustasha student organization and Ustasha youth, because Ustasha youth see themselves as the vanguard of the radicalism of the movement, and so they start the, so you get this intergenerational conflict. And then the final thing that happens is as Ustasha youth students get older and they go to university, they then start getting into generational conflicts with the group of students who've just left university. And what's interesting is that the radical Ustasha youth students you know, start developing a very different line, um, a, a line that regime really, really doesn't like. So, so there's all sorts of conflicts there as well.
Okay, and here again are just some more random images. Um, so on the left is someone called Luca Pugliers, who was um, a Sarajevo Ustasha youth leader. And on the right is um, Zagreb party boss Bojidar Kavran. And the reason I put these guys in is because they're two of the leading moderates, technocratic moderates, who come to the fore after autumn 1941. And here on the other side are two of the uh, very, very hardline student leaders um, who become quite notorious, Zdenko Blazekovic and Franjo Novistic. And when sort of this Russian youth go to university and become quite sort of um, dissident student, they form this dissident student group called Plug, which wants a very different kind of state and is quite critical of the Ustaz regime, they really clamp down it very, very hard. Okay, so very, very quickly. So another big thing that the Ustaz regime is very interested in is the idea of moral regeneration. Okay, so they think that peasants can, they think the city, the city is contaminated and they want peasant values to purify the city. But at the same time, they the idea that they can morally regenerate um, society. So they introduce the death penalty for abortion. So any doctor that carries out an abortion is to be sentenced to death. Um, they introduce imprisonment for drunkenness, prostitution, gambling, swearing and vagrancy. Now, one of the reasons why they come down very, very hard on vagrancy is because, you know, the Ustasha state is a real surveillance state. Okay, um, so they're very, very worried about people moving around the country with no one having any idea where they are. So they become very, very worried. At the, what are these people doing? Okay, but at the same time, they link moral degeneration to the Serbs and the Jews. So all those vices they are fighting against, drunkenness, swearing, they link very much to Serbs and, and, and to Jewish influence on Croatia. Okay, the second part of their, uh, of their idea of moral regeneration is this cult of sacrifice and martyrdom and dying. That They become very, very transfixed by this whole idea. So they, they personify Ustasha warriors as saints and missionaries. And they create these two days for mourning. One day is called the Day of the Dead, uh, which is obviously on the 1st of November. And the other day is the Day of Croatian Martyrs, which is a day when they remember everyone who's ever died for the Croatian state and Croatian liberation. But again, th th there's all sorts of contradictions with this because this becomes increasingly criticised because what some ideologues say is actually we don't need to celebrate these two days. So they say actually we, we, don't, we don't want to eulogise dying, we want you know, people joining death squads and so on. Okay? And so this idea of killing and violence as formative experiences for, for anyone joining the Ustasha movement becomes very, very strong. And this is also reflected in the culture of the state, um, that there's this whole genre of literature which is emerges, which is basically death poetry, which is glorifying dying and graves and also killing as well. Okay, so the final part of this section. Okay, so just looking at art and cultural politics very, very quickly, a lot of this has already been covered um, and it pretty much follows the pattern you expect it would. So in the beginning, there's a real kind of uh, attempt to create this new radical culture and literature, and there's a new generation of radical right artists, writers and poets that come to the fore. And they create this whole, the Ustasha regime decides it wants to purify the Croatian language because it's full of uh, Jewish and international and Serbian expressions, so they decide they want to purify it. But this falls away quite quickly because the minute this new, this new ethos comes in, it suddenly isn't quite as attractive as it seemed to be. And I think one of the effects of this second revolution is that, that, that in a, trying to build a more national culture, they promote this pragmatic national approach to art. So the whole radical cultural agenda gets sidelined and they, they create art culture for workers and peasants and competitions for art for people's artists. And as I said, there's a campaign for taste and culture values. Now, why would they do that? Why do they suddenly become so interested in creating art and culture for workers and peasants? I'd argue that partly it's a kind of compensation to that radical working class part of their movement 
which wants to stay with a very radical agenda, it becomes kind of like a compensation for things that they actually can't achieve in politics anymore. And you can see that, that, that these two dynamics seem to be quite connected to each other. So I think it's a form of compensation. Okay, so looking at the Eustachia state as a type of a violent society, if you think it is a violent society, a prototypical violent society. So what things can you sort of suggest might be going on from that? Okay, so I think what my overriding point, I guess, is that, you know, terror is always linked to something else. I don't really necessarily think that it's, it's just something which happens on its own. There's always something else going on underneath it. And I think in the case of the Ustash regime, they did want to remake society and they did want to, as they say, regenerate a society that they thought was dying. And uh, terror was a part of that, but then the cultural policies also fitted into that as well. Okay, I think if you look at the Ustash regime, it's quite clear that most regimes are just really fragile coalitions of different factions fighting up against each other. So they can, they can gain support from the population, but I think they're also vulnerable to popular pressure. And in fact, you know, one of the arguments as to why they abandoned their radical racial policies in the, in the late 1941 is because there, there are uprisings and, and there's pressure from the public for them to stop. Okay, I'd also say that crises of legitimacy within regimes usually expose social, generational, class and intellectual disagreements. Okay, so it's when, it's when regimes reach a crisis point that all the sort of things which are bubbling along underneath the surface come out into the public, okay? And one, one of the reasons why I can write about this stuff is because it ends up in the journals. Now, it doesn't start in the journals. It starts in, in sort of personal correspondence and, you know, things that are in the archives, letters and reports and so on, where people say, we're really worried because we're losing so much support. It only ends up in the journals and in, and in books and so on once it, it's been publicly acknowledged that there's a problem there. And I think social culture politics can reflect ideological anxieties, but I think at the same time, quite often they compensate. Okay, so regimes, if they're, if they're losing support or their initial program isn't going very well, then they'll do something else to compensate for that. At the same time, it's also possible that regimes, they will actually use genocide or mass murder to compensate for that. So if they've created this new society, and they think they don't have much popular support, then they might also use mass murder or demonization of particular groups to compensate for that instead. And I guess I'd also argue that a lot of projects of violent national purification, a lot of violent societies, when they do abandon radical ideas, it's usually quite contingent. You know, if you look at the Eustace regime, it abandoned it for a while, but I don't believe it ever meant to abandon it completely. It always intended to come back to it at a later date. Okay, so coming on to the last two sections, the last two slides. So where do I think that research should probably go in the future? Where might research go in the future on this subject? Okay. So the first thing I think is um, you need a collaborative, supportive community of people who are committed, you know, to working together. I think that doesn't exist at the moment. I think partly because if you look at the former Yugoslavia, a lot of uh, academics are quite that take quite antagonistic lines towards each other, and I don't think there's an open necessarily always an open attitude to new ideas and new ways of approaching the subject. I think it can also be quite territorial. You know, if you come, someone like me who has no background from the former Yugoslavia, it can sometimes be quite difficult to actually be accepted or, or to get your ideas across because you think, well, what do you know? You know, what does an American, they always think I'm American for some reason, that, that's the kind of weird thing. It's like, what does this American know about this subject? He doesn't know anything, so I don't know why I think I'm American. I would really like to see inside-out approaches being an accepted approach and you know, interdisciplinary approaches, and I think we're not there yet. I don't think it's the only approach. I think all sorts of other approaches are, are useful. Political, high politics, diplomatic history, they all have their place, but I'd like to see inter inter interdisciplinary approaches have their place and be accepted. 
Okay, I would like to get away from personality-driven top-down politics because I don't think it's necessarily particularly interesting and I don't think it encourages other people to want to study the subject area because it just puts people off. I think you need to ask the big questions, so asking why do things happen, but I think you need small-scale research and I think at the moment there's still a tendency to see everything as a kind of survey history approach. So let's just write a big book about the independent state of Croatia, about everything we know about the subject, rather than thinking, well, let's look at one particular town or one particular event, you know, and, and actually sometimes micro-historical approaches work better in reflecting what's going on in a state than, than that big survey approach, okay? I think you need to take risks and be experimental. And again, I think that's related to having support, you know, more widely amongst researchers who are studying this area. And I think that's starting to happen. I think there's a generational thing happen. And I think the sort of young people coming through now who are PhD students take quite a different approach to maybe people who are slightly older. And I think there has to be a willingness to engage with different viewpoints and approaches and a mosaic approach. So, you know, I think in the same way that you need lots of little pieces of glass to make a mosaic. I think you need all sorts of different approaches to build up a picture, okay? You know, so I can't write everything there is to know on the subject and nor can anyone else, but actually if you put it all together then you, then you build up a really complex picture of what's going on, okay? And I think also you need to, as, as someone who's very uh, interested in evidence-based approaches, you need to examine your own motivations and research methods. You know, I'm sure you've all read history papers or books where someone's got an argument and you think, nah, this isn't really working for me. And so I think if you're trying to, you know, uh, push an argument and, and you can't make it fit the research, then you have to consider whether you're trying to skew the data to suit your own argument or whether actually the, you know, there's something wrong with your methodology. So I think you need to examine your own principles. And the other thing I'd say is that I think nowadays that quite a lot of historians look down on the communist era history of the Ustasha regime and independence of It's actually quite good, some of it. It's limited and, and, and it's got its own particular framework and it's full of Marxist slogans and so on, but it's actually really good, some of it. And, and you know, some of the people who were writing in the 1970s, people like uh, Fikreti Jelic Butic and, and Bogdan Krizman, uh, you know, a lot of their ideas are just things that I've developed or other people have developed later on. So it's actually quite good, some of that stuff. Okay, so finally, okay, so one of the people who's contributing to this book project said to me that a very uh, august professor in Zagreb said, when he said, I want to do, I want to do something comparative about the Ustasha regime, you know, looking at what they're like compared to, say, other fascists, he said, oh, no, no, you can't do that, you, you, you can't do this comparative, the Ustasha regime is exceptional, it's, it's completely unique. Well, how can you know that unless you take a comparative approach, it's not possible. You know, so you do the comparative stuff and they say, yes, it is exceptional. And then you can work out what is exceptional and what, what is actually common to all fascist regimes. Because when you're studying the Ustasha regime, you're not just thinking about what's going on in Croatia. You know, it's also important for other scholars who look at other, other fascist regimes because they also want to, they're interested in what's going on in Croatia, what's going on in Serbia, what's going on in Hungary. And one of the things that I found encouraging with a lot of my research is the number of positive comments I've had from people who study fascism in other countries. He said, actually, I find this interesting. This is useful for my own research. So I think it's very, very important, okay? I think you need to get a wider audience, okay? You know, if you're doing the independent state of Croatia, you've got an audience probably not much bigger than this, to be quite honest with you. You know, so I think you need to find, the reason why I started doing interdisciplinary work was because there wasn't enough secondary source information if I wanted to do a purely political approach, okay? So I had to be a bit more creative and a bit more imaginative to kind of root around to find the evidence. And that's how I ended up there. And, and that way you build a wide audience. And I think it's got to be readable. You know, some of the stuff 
isn't necessarily that readable. And I think it's got to be stuff that people want to read. And people enjoy reading, you know, rather than saying, oh, God, I got to read this book. You know, I've read books. I thought, wow, that was fantastic. It's got nothing to do with my... I read Sheila Fitzpatrick. I think she's brilliant. It's got nothing to do with my research. Nothing at all. But I just enjoy reading it because it's really nicely written. And Ruth Ben-Giet and Victoria de Grazia, all these people, Shelley Baranovsky, you know, Jochen Helbeck, nothing to do with my work, but I just enjoy reading them, okay? Um, so as I've mentioned, a lot of these areas, you know, all these things that are common to many other um, studies of uh, Soviet and uh, Soviet Russia and fascist history and Nazi Germany, subjectivity, popular support and social mobility, you know, this is kind of, um, you know, Bush League stuff for, for a lot of historians, but in the area I work in, I think it's still quite new. So looking at regional and micro-historical approaches rather than just always thinking about, you know, doing some big survey work, okay? Different subcultures, of, as I've already described, you know, can tell you a lot about what's going on in a regime and, and, and how people are sort of reacting to what's going on in the state, okay? So exploring how terror is linked to wider cultural and social processes, okay? Not necessarily seeing them as different things, but seeing as related. You know, you think about Nazi Germany, the social policies to do with you know when women had babies was that because they were really nice and they liked babies or was there something else going on linked to their racial policies well you know so I think it's very very useful also imaginative use of archives as well as printed vision oral sources you know I, I read a lot of books and, and, and people have used the archives and I think wow I think you could have done so much more with that particular archive or you know and I sometimes look at the stuff that I get from the archives which is really quirky stuff and I'm thinking I always think it's interesting but I'm thinking maybe it's just me you know, everyone else is looking at the right stuff and I'm looking at the wrong stuff, you know. But to me, I just think, well, that's really interesting. And other people must have seen that. They must have just thought, nah, not going to bother with that. And maybe it's not serious the stuff I'm looking at. Yeah, I'm doing it wrong. And, you know, I read all these books that are very kind of chronological. I think, that's how you write history. And it's not how I do it. So maybe I'm actually in the wrong here, okay? And I think that way you bring these subject matters into the mainstream. And as I said, it's useful to other historians of other fascist regimes or other similar regimes and other similar states because they want to understand you know how what they're doing compares to what you're doing in other states as well and I also just think you know you look at a lot of the stuff that the Ustasha regime did particularly in terms of you know their campaigns of terror and how they frame that in terms of you know a campaign of national liberation and an anti-colonial uh, crusade and so on you know you look at a lot of things that are going on both now and were happening happening say five ten years ago you know that's really relevant to what you so you can use you know if you have case studies of what they're doing you can actually use that when you're thinking about things that are going on now and things that are going on 15 years ago one interesting fact Pol Pot got some of his ideas from Croatia because he was a student in Croatia in the 1950s uh, one of the things the Ustasha regime did is they had blue stickers for Serbs with people Pravoslavats Orthodox on it okay and so when he created these he had these had something similar for Vietnamese people as well he apparently he was actually inspired by that you know the kind of the labeling system they had for people so that people were marked out and he used that in Cambodia you know so he was using it, so why aren't we kind of using it for good reasons rather than bad reasons? Okay, and I think that's just about 40 minutes, so how is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs>